will be holding up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but, he, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fail or fall in his brother's way. That's our reading. We trust the Lord will bless it again as we've read it together. I think it would be true to say that, certainly in my experience and observation that, <coughs> excuse me, the main issue that a local church in the UK faces is rarely pressure from society or persecution from religion. Rarely, if at all. Now, the main issue of conflict and division and problems um, I think, comes from within, from diverse people with unredeemed flesh, that is, you and me. So people from a variety of backgrounds, upbringings, personality, character, life experience, with unredeemed flesh, in close proximity, produces problems. That's just true. And so I think that although we are aware of the environment in which we serve the Lord in terms of society, and we are aware of the personal uh, challenges that face us living in that society, for we're not to be um, isolated, but we're still not to be conformed to it. And so we live and we work and we don't isolate ourselves. So that brings challenges of uh, conformity, it brings challenges of morality and all the rest of it. But when it comes to us as assemblies of the Lord's people, then in our country at the very least, I think it's true in saying this, and certainly history proves this to be the case, recent history, that more assembly problems and more problems amongst the saints come from ourselves as opposed to others outside. I think that that's not a new thing because when Paul writes this book to the Romans, after he has given an exposition of the gospel for 11 chapters as it is in our Bibles, and he starts speaking about the practical implications of the gospel in the lives of believers, he spends a considerable part of this section, which runs from chapter 12 through to the end, he spends a considerable part of, I noted down here, 35 verses actually, dealing with this issue of relationship between believers. 
Now that's a big chunk of the section. And he's speaking about how we get on with people, believers, that we don't agree with. There's very little point or problem, I think, in getting on with people that you agree with, but how do you get on, how do you form and maintain relationship with people with whom you have differences? These differences can be cultural, dietary, as they are in Romans and Corinth, and they can be issues of conscience and so forth. We'll dig into this in a moment or two. But the basic issue is this. We are going to give an account of the judgment seat of Christ for this very thing. It doesn't say that we're going to be assessed as to how we go on with the people we agreed with. No doubt we will, but the issue really is, how do you get on with people that you don't agree with? That's a different thing. And that's what he's going to speak about here in this section. And so this is Paul's extended response to the mercies of God, which is a description of the first 11 chapters of Romans. And he enters into chapter 12, and he uses that as the foundation, if you like. It's certainly the, what he's building upon in terms of his practical exhortations. On the basis of being recipients of God's mercies, which is a description of the gospel, how should we be, how should we live, how should we function? And he covers areas in these chapters of serving one another, of submission to authorities, of sincere love, and that's where we run out of essays, and also of universal love as well. And one of the key pivots, if you like, in this section is chapter 13 and verse 8, which says this, Owe no man anything but to love one another. It's got, that's a pivot in the section. Now, he's going to speak about the issue of love and freedom, and that has been an issue that runs in Romans. Doctrinally, in chapter 6 to chapter 8, we've been, you would have been looking at freedom from the compulsion to sin. Um, in chapter 8, freedom from the condemnation of God. And now in chapter 14, he's going to speak about a different freedom. Freedom from the conscience of another believer. Freedom from the conscience of another believer. Now, every issue in which the Bible speaks, it is infallible. We understand that. This is the word of God. And when God in his word addresses an issue, there is authority and infallibility in that instruction. No question about that. But we also understand this, that the Bible does not speak on every issue. It's not an encyclopedia of ethics. And so the problem comes when there are issues of conscience for which there is no direct instruction from God. That seems to be the great area of life that Paul is addressing here in Romans and addresses elsewhere. Now, there are two elements and extremes that come from this. So there are people, and this is a quotation actually, there are professing Christian people who are determined to bring you under 
their religious thumb and control your conscience. So they want to make you a slave of their conscience. They have built a tidy religious box without biblical justification and strive to stuff you inside it and make you conform to its dimensions. The tools that they employ are guilt, fear, intimidation, and self-righteousness. They proclaim God's unconditional love for you, but insist on certain conditions before including you among the accepted ones, among the approved elite, among God's favored few. Now, that's an extreme position. The effect of that extreme position adopted by certainly some of the people that Paul was writing to in the New Testament and if the shoe fits, then put yourself in there. But certainly that's who Paul was addressing on occasion. People like that. The effect of that sort of approach to your Christian experience upon other people will be that other people will live in fear of doing something that you consider according to your conscience to be unholy. Even though the Bible is silent on the subject key point. You may even, as a person, be terrified of incurring someone's disapproval or disdain or rejection because you do not conform to their conscience. Worse still, you could end up thinking and fearing God's disapproval for violating someone else's conscience by failing to adhere to man-made tradition or cultural norms that have no basis in Scripture. Again, key expression. Maybe you're there. Maybe you feel inadequate, inferior, guilty, immature, all because of your perceived failure to adopt someone else's conscience. Just remember that Paul says this to the Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 13. He says to the saints, you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom. Now, of course, like all things, there is a balance. And there is a significant excuse me, a significant difference between the teaching of Romans chapter 14 and when you move into Galatians and Colossians. Paul here dealing with the subject of conscience in Romans 14 and also when he gets into the teaching of 1 Corinthians. Paul is very gentle here, but he's not very gentle when he writes to the Galatians. There's a different tone. And likewise, when he writes to the Colossians, listen to Galatians 1 verse 8, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's severe language. And it's very decisive language. Because in Galatia, there were people teaching the Old Testament law in particular, and Mosaic ceremony as being necessary for salvation. And Paul says that goes hard against the doctrines of the gospel. 
And divine revelation has been clear about the fact that that is not true. It's not of God. It's not the gospel. You're preaching another gospel. And Paul will not take a step back from confronting that and from correcting that and from being severe with those who persist in teaching that. The truth he teaches against in Galatians and Colossians is not what he's speaking about here in Romans 14. I think it's interesting that Paul, you see Paul in action with this mindset when he confronts Peter. And Peter had responded to the Judaizers and was again implementing some of that Judaizing teaching and separating himself out from the Gentiles. And it says that Paul withstood him to the face for he was to be blamed. So Paul didn't take a step back when that sort of error required to be faced and to be corrected, and people had to be dealt with. When you come to Romans 14, it's very often seen as being a parallel passage to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through to 10, and in many ways it is. However, there are differences between the issues in Corinth and the issues in Rome. Marginal differences, but differences nonetheless. So in Corinth, the problem was meat sold in the marketplace had come from animals sacrificed or consecrated to pagan idols. And that was a big issue for those saved out of that pagan idolatry. Huge issue of conscience. And there were two groups within the assembly at Corinth that disagreed as to whether that, each, that meat should be consumed whether it was appropriate to buy the meat, to eat the meat, or even to go to the temple and have a meal where the meat being consumed had been offered to idols. That was the issue in Corinth. And Paul dealt with it. And he employs similar teaching with the issue in Romans, albeit the issue is different. There's no mention of food or drink offered to idols here. The observation of certain days is special to Romans 14. You don't get that so much in 1 Corinthians. The weakness in Romans 14 was involving a vegetarian diet. It was a, a very a scrupulous attitude towards all meat, not just that which was offered to idols. So the distinction and issue was there, but the broad application of principles that Paul brings to bear applies in both sets of circumstances. And that's helpful because it means it's not just a particular teaching for this particular single issue. You can see Paul employing similar teaching in what was a slightly different issue of conscience, of conscience. So that gives us legitimacy, in my view, to make the application from the single issue in a broader sphere of conscience than this single solitary issue of diet and of days. So that is by way of introduction. That's the, that's the context in which Romans 14 is placed. So this is the realm of the believer's conscience. We'll dig into this in a moment. So if you look at verse number one, we'll work our way down the verses and see what Paul teaches in this context and how then he comes to the judgment seat of Christ. So in verse one, he says, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Now, the expanded translation by Woost, which I've quoted a few times today, says this. Now, to the one who is weak with respect to his faith, be given, I love this, a cordial welcome. 
That's the kind of thing you put in a letter of commendation, a cordial welcome, or even an advert in a believer's magazine. <laughs> Not with a view to a critical analysis of his inward reasoning. The New American Standard puts it this way, Now accept the one who is weak in faith but not to have quarrels over opinions. Let's break this down. Now, that word now, right at the beginning, which is not in the King James, but appears in the text nonetheless, now. And that word now, which is in quite a few translations, actually linked us back into chapter 13. So he's, he's taught right through chapter 13, and now he says, now. Okay, so it's building in what's gone before, and in particular, that hinge verse of verse 8, Oh, no man anything but to love one another, for he, or that, for he that loveth one another hath fulfilled the law. He expands on that down the rest of the chapter, and now here's the implication of it. So now, how is the command to love in verse number 8 of chapter 13 applied to this set of circumstances? So let's try and put it into our modern context. Not with specifics, but in a broad sense. You will have one believer, let's use the word with scruples based upon conscience, which is sincere. You have another believer who is different who does not have the same scruples because his conscience sincerely is different. The sincerity is important for the teaching. This is not people being carnal. This is not people looking to um, attack other people or denigrate them or um, mock them in some sort of way. None, none of that whatsoever. There is a sincerity that's necessary for the understanding of this passage and its implementation. So it is a conscience and it's a true conscience. So you have two different people uh, and there they are and they're in fellowship together in the same assembly. But they look at life a bit differently. Now he says this. He is going to describe one of those individuals in the following way. He says, now, him that is weak in the faith. Now, a little bit of grammar. Excuse me. Him that is weak is the present participle could be rendered this way. The one who is in the present tense of being weak. So the participle seems to indicate this is a failure of faith or a state of immaturity which is at a given moment of time. It is not necessarily an ongoing situation, and hopefully it will not be an ongoing situation. It's not that someone has got to this position and is expected to remain as this. This is a process of maturity and of growth as a Christian, but as they are at this moment, they are described as weak in the faith. Now, what does he mean by in the faith? And literally, it is this, I think, that the weak, pro the weak person has a problem in their understanding or a deficiency in their understanding of the faith, of the body of doctrine in our New Testament in particular. 
So this is a person who does not fully understand. It's not that they're rebellious. It's not that they're being awkward deliberately. They, they do not have a genuine full acceptance or understanding of the grace and liberty of the gospel as has been brought to them. Now remember, many of these people were coming from a Jewish background with a whole lifetime of religious observance of a structure that impacted their diet, their dress, their, 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 their diet, their dress, their diary, there you go, and all that kind of stuff. And their whole life was constrained by these religious ordinances and regulations. And suddenly they've been saved and they have been liberated from that. But people don't just go from one to the other like that in life. There's a carry through, there's a carry on, a lot of these things that were ingrained in their DNA from birth. And whether you like it or not, they may in their mind know that they've been liberated from that, but in their conscience, they are still bound by these things. This is the sort of context. Him that is weak. In the faith, some people understand this incorrectly, I think, which is to understand this weakness to be synonymous with excess and a lack of control. It's the exact opposite. The weak brother here is not someone who cannot restrain themselves and is given to overindulgence. The weak brother here is actually the exact opposite. It's someone who's very buttoned up who's very restrictive towards himself, who will not do, who cannot feel okay about doing things that otherwise he's at, he's, he's at liberty to do. The gospel has liberated him. So this is not uncontrolled overindulgence as a weakness. This is overly scrupulous abstinence in the context. Now that is kind of counterintuitive to us when we think of the word weak. We might think, no, that's strength. I mean, asceticism teaches you, you know, the, the, the stronger you are as a person, the more that you can restrict yourself and the more that you can discipline yourself and, and there's value in that and the training of the body and all that asceticism. Actually, when you come to Romans 14, you need to reverse your thinking about what is weak and strong. So this is someone with a weakness in their understanding and acceptance and implementation of the fullness of the gospel into which they have been brought. And that, that puts itself out into the life as someone who cannot bring themselves to do certain things because of their genuine conscience. Their sincere conscience. Now, how do you get that in modern life? Well, here's how I get it. It depends on a, on a lot of things. It depends on your family background. It depends on your spiritual history. It depends on your exposure to accurate, good Bible teaching. It also depends on your maturity as a Christian. All these factors come in to make you the person you are at this moment in time. And not everyone has the same story. Not everyone has heard or come under the influence of people in their life who've instructed them, discipled them, taught them, brought them on in the Christian faith. Not everyone. Not everyone has the same background of benefit and privilege that you may have. Not everyone has the same spiritual history that you may have. 
Let us remember this, that this is teaching not just for a closed environment of a few select assemblies. This is, this is for all Christians. This is for the Christians that you meet in the most far-flung places with a background that's so different for yours and mine with all sorts of influences and teachings and lifestyles that they've had before they became a Christian and they carry all of that as part of who they are. What does it look like in a kind of context in which I'm standing here? Well, sometimes it looks like this and I could put myself right in here. So I'm not pointing the finger at anyone else. I mean, this could be me, seriously me, when I was younger. This writer says this, let me illustrate. Often when a believer first becomes a Christian, in an attempt to show his overwhelming gratitude to Christ for what he's done, he becomes a meticulous rule keeper. Not only with the Bible, but also extra biblical behavior that others tell him to do. He wants to know what the rules are and how to live within them. As a result, the Christian becomes mechanical in their walk with the Lord. And as the Christian then matures, then the Holy Spirit is given place and authority within the life and guides and empowers. And what happens over time is there's a gradual weaning away from that rigid rule-keeping approach to relationship with Christ. And instead of it making you less spiritual, it should make you more spiritual. Unless, instead of it making you less holy, it should make you more holy. It should not make you less committed, it should make you more committed. Not less disciplined, more disciplined. That's what maturity is all about. But it doesn't come from an imposition of an external dogma or whatever. Rather, it comes from the Spirit of God within and the effect of the work of the Spirit of God as the Word of God is imbibed and learned. These are basic sort of things of Christianity. But here he says, listen, there are those that are weak. What are you going to do about that? The instruction here is not to the weak. It's to the strong. I think it's interesting when you come to Galatians and there were people who were following Judaistic teaching and were weakened in their faith as a consequence. And what happened was due to their weakness that they stumbled in their walk with the Lord in Galatians 5. And then it says, let him that is spiritual. So you've got someone who is not weakened by Judaistic teaching, but they're spiritual. That's the person who draws alongside someone who's weakened by the Judaistic teaching and helps him up and holds him up and all the rest of it and, and builds him up. And is the person who's able to minister and help. It's the spiritual person that's got to make the move to help. Now, I think it's interesting when you come to Romans 14, it's him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. You need to receive this person with their scruples, with their conscience, with their background and all the rest of it, you cannot distance yourself from such. And that expression receive literally means taking to oneself. 
You put a preposition at the front of the word and it strengthens and intensifies the word, which makes it into an imperative or rather a command. This is non-negotiable. Paul says this, him that is weak in the faith, you must receive to yourself. You cannot distance yourself from such a person. You must not. I think it's interesting. This is the very same word and expression that's used of God's acceptance of us in Christ. So the verb means more than just allow them into fellowship. The verb means more than tolerate them. The verb actually is the notion of welcome, of bringing yourself into fellowship and them into fellowship with you. They're to be received into relationship and fellowship, not cut off, not distanced. And when you receive them, it's not to argue with them. That's what he's saying here, but not to doubtful disputations arguments and these issues of conscience which are characterizing this person with the background I mentioned with the sincerity of the conscience you have not to make it your business to be the maturing element in that person's life by basically debating and arguing and fighting about these issues that he has a sincere, genuine conscience about. You know, to target that. You don't receive the men to destroy them. And he said, do not receive for that purpose. You know, that's the kind of, that's the way we think. Oh, he's an absolute Pharisee. I'm going to show him the error of his ways. I'm going to transform him. I'm going to liberate him. Paul says that's the wrong reason for receiving to yourself. Well, if you look at verse number two, and he's going to give an example now in more detail of what he means by weak and strong. And this is to demonstrate that we have to receive, if you are strong, you have to receive, and if you're weak, you have to be received, wherever you fall into this category. And here's the first point as to why, because God receives them. That's the first point. God receives them. Interesting point. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. You see the idea? So someone looks at food and understands the truth that he's at liberty to eat all of that food. He's not subject to Old Testament dietary requirements. He can eat all of it. I often say that obviously mushrooms are exempt from that because they're hideous, but you can eat all stuff that you want to eat. But there's another brother over here that can't. He spent his life under dietary requirements. And these dietary requirements, he cannot give up in all good conscience. So he's not eating everything that's set before him. It says here, he's eating herbs. Poor soul. <laughs> Poor soul. Imagine being afflicted with that conscience. But that's true. That's the situation. So he gives examples. The strong can eat all things. Doesn't have any dietary constraints. He's not bound by Old Testament mosaic ceremony or dietary laws. The weak is eating his vegetables, which, by the way, could also be offered to idols. And the one who believes he can eat everything is strong and is right. But being right is not the end of the teaching. It's just the beginning. It puts the emphasis for properly constructing a relationship with the, with the person onto you, if you're right. It falls upon you, not upon the other brother. 
And so in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, is, is where the teaching comes. For every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused. It's received with thanksgiving, sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Now look at verse 3. Now here's some instruction. If that be the case, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him which eateth. It's hard to say that very fast, but the idea is just this. He's pointing out different attitudes that can pertain from both individuals. There is the word despise and there is the word judge. So he says, look, do not, if you're strong, if you can feel free to eat all these things, don't treat someone as nothing. Someone with that conscience, don't you treat them with contempt. Don't you despise them. And then conversely, let's, not him which eateth not. So he's a person with the scruples and the conscience. Judge, meaning to condemn, the person who is eating. You see the need for mutuality in this relationship. Don't you despise and don't you judge or condemn? Because they were forming conclusions and opinions about motivation and sincerity that was not theirs actually to conclude. And he says this in verse number three, for God hath received him. Both of them are received by God. The man with the scruples, the man without the scruples. God does not make that a point of fellowship with himself. It should not be a point that breaks the fellowship between the two, brother, two men. God has received them. You receive them. And if the Lord receives the weak, we ought to receive the weak. If the Lord receives the strong, we ought to receive the strong. Who do we think we are? So he speaks about attitude. Now he also speaks about God sustaining them. So in verse number four, he says, Who art thou that judges another man's servant? So here's the judging commandment now. Remember, they don't serve us. Let's just remind it. You know, you don't serve me, I don't serve you. Sometimes we speak to each other as if we do. We don't. We serve among each other. We will do acts of service, etc., for each other. But you are not my Lord, and I am not your Lord. Full stop. So he says here, Who art thou that judges another man's servant? Who do you think you are? That's what he's saying. He's not your servant. Yet you have formed an opinion as to why he's doing what he's doing, come to a conclusion and separated yourself from as a consequence. Who do you think you are? To judge in that way the Lord's servant, not your servant. So he says this, listen, he shall be holding up. Don't you worry about him. He'll go on just fine. The same God that sustains you will sustain him. Don't you worry about that. His conscience or lack of it in this area, does not exclude him from his relationship with God or the sustaining influence and power of God in his life. It doesn't. Surprise, surprise. You are not going to replace God in this man's life. God sustains them. Now he continues. And now he speaks about the need to obey your own conscience. 
So in verse number five, as he works down this issue, he says, one man esteem, esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth another day alike, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So he's spoken about this act or this dietary issue. Now he's going to speak about special days. And of course, the Jewish calendar and also the Greek calendar had all sorts of days that were observed by them for all sorts of reasons. Now he says this, not everyone among you think the same thing about these days. It's another cultural thing that we're part and parcel of some of the past. And you've got a genuine, sincere conscience about what you do on that day. For all your lifetime, you have been taught, you have actually lived in a way where when it's this certain day, you do not do certain things or you maybe do certain things. But there's a behavior associated with that day and it's ingrained in you. It's absolutely ingrained in you. And if that be the case, he says this, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. If your conscience sincerely is telling you to abide by certain preferential traditions or taboos or scruples in relation to a day, you just go ahead and obey it. Don't you let anyone persuade you not to. That's a sincere conscience issue. You go ahead. Because if it be the case that you are not changing as a consequence of you increasing in your knowledge and understanding of the faith, growing in maturity, if it's just abiding by someone else's conscience, that's going to cause you to sin against your conscience. That's going to mess with your conscience. You're going to have a guilt. You're going to be diminished in your relationship with the Lord because you are doing something or not doing something because someone else's conscience is determined. And you've still got this sensitivity in your conscience. And so he says in verse number six, and we're getting there through the issue, we're getting there. He says in verse number six, listen, he that regardeth the day regardeth unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he hath not regard to it. He's basically saying this, in this issue of whether you regard the day or not regard the day, there needs to be sincerity in the people and they're doing it genuinely as unto the Lord. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about silly stuff. Sincere believers. And you're criticizing their motive and you haven't a clue. And you're assuming motive to their conscience. Why does a weak brother keep the tradition that he was doing and the ritual and all the things that he was doing? Because in his heart, he believes by so doing, he is pleasing the Lord. That's what he believes, genuinely. Until he grows in maturity and understanding and so on, and he is not so weak in the faith when he comes to a different place in his conscience. At this point in time, he believes sincerely he's pleasing the Lord. You let him do it. Don't you interfere with that. Why does a strong brother enjoy the freedoms that he's been given in Christ to the full? Because by so doing, he believes in his heart he's pleasing the Lord. The strong brother believes he's pleasing the Lord. The weak brother believes he's pleasing the Lord. This is an area, a great area if you like. This is an area where there's no specific instruction. This is an area of conscience. It's not actually pleasing God if you do or pleasing God if you don't. It's not sinning if you do or sinning if you don't. And if you believe that in your heart, then you need to do it. You need to do it. 
For he says, for none of us live to ourselves. No man dies to ourselves in verse 7. Whether we're weak or strong, we do what we do because we believe it pleases the Lord. That is the context of this teaching. Sometimes it's drawn out of context and it's used like a trump card. You know, so people say, you cannot do something because it offends my conscience. I don't see any of that here. None. What I would say is, no, you cannot do it because it offends your conscience. That's the issue. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to change you. You go ahead or don't go ahead as your conscience dictates on that issue, but do not impose your conscience upon me. So this is not a trump card to manipulate other people into conformity to your conscience. For he says in verse number eight, for whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. I'm not going to go through that again. That's been right through our sessions. And then he says in verse 9, For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And he's saying this, Why did the Lord Jesus die on the cross? To be our Savior and to be our Lord. That's why he died. That's why he rose. That he might be Lord of all and Lord of us. So he died to reign over believers that are here and to reign over believers that are there. As all. He is Lord of all in that sense, even those beyond the grave. And he has dominion over all his creation and we serve him. And the judging of motive and conscience ultimately is a matter for him. Now don't take this out of context. It's got to remain in context. So he says, but why dost thou judge thy brother? So he said all of that. He says, why, why are you judging your brother in this context? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? Why are you criticizing and diminishing your brother in Christ because of his scruples? Because he's weak in the faith. Because he's not yet come to an understanding of the liberty of the gospel. Because his conscience is still sensitive and tender in the areas that Paul has illustrated here in Romans 14. Why would you despise or condemn such a person? Paul says this, well, listen. And he quotes Isaiah 45, verse 23, and he says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat, most translations have, of God, not of Christ. And he says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So he's saying this, that we will one day give an account to Christ, to God, same person, to divine sovereignty. Why are we judging here what God alone can judge? which is motive and conscience. Why are we despising people based on our assessment of their motive and conscience? That is a matter for God alone. There needs to be that respect, that consideration, 
that love for each other that will not draw us into that sort of attitude to each other. And some will judge and some will despise on either side of this issue. Neither point is appropriate. And God, who is the sovereign Lord of all and of us, alone has the right to judge such things. And verse 12 finishes with this. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. For what? For what? For my attitude towards people whose conscience is different from mine in the context of this. The biblical idea of conscience, not just honed preference, but genuine conscience. A sincere believer who, if he overrode that conscience, would be sinning by so doing and damaged as a consequence. Paul develops that idea of it more in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 as he speaks to a similar issue. So here, here's a little challenge. Who do we despise or judge and why? Very few of us like difference to ourselves. But why, Paul says, why would you do that? He says, listen, there's a day that you are going to account for that attitude and you will account to the Lord himself. Relationships. That singular source, albeit not that issue, but that idea has caused untold difficulty amongst the Lord's people. The idea of thinking that we have the right and necessity of judging another man's conscience and motive. Paul says, that's completely wrong. So we have these three things today in the judgment seat of Christ. It's hardly what you call a light subject. It's a very challenging subject. And the takeaway for me is just this. If I genuinely believe, genuinely believe, I'm going to stand there soon. Then what we've considered from these passages must be a consideration in my life. The things done in the body, whether good or bad. What I'm building into my local assembly and my relationship with my fellow brothers and sisters whose conscience is not calibrated like mine. For these three things, we will give an account in that day. I trust the Lord might challenge us in these things. Let's just pray. Father, we bow again in thy presence to give thanks for thy word. We think of this subject that's so culturally removed from where we are in our modern culture here in the West, but we think, Father, of the principles that Paul brings to bear upon it. Help us, our Father, to apply them to similar issues that we have. 
Father, we just thank thee for being able to look at thy word. We pray that out of all the day that the word will remain and anything that is superfluous to it will be taken away by thy spirit. And so, Father, we thank thee for the time together and the people gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.